My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. In the last episode, I explored different aspects of the stage of development where children move into understanding more about their environment and the societal, familial and cultural norms, and where their own worldviews and passions, their own needs and their own thoughts and ages of reason and logic of children begin to come against the logic or illogic of the adult world around them. And I want to take that a little bit further into the baby teens, how that impacts us as adults, and how if we are working at our own well-being, it can be helpful to return to and imagine how we did at moving through that stage of identity formation and how that may impact us still today. When I try to imagine these things for this episode of the podcast, I'm trying to draw on what is optimal, what might be considered the successful transition through these different stages of development, what it would look like if everything around us as we pass through them is well held, good enough an environment good enough a holding to successfully progress into another stage of development. And I think when we come to that within the context of Western cultures and in the stages of where that world around children begins to really impact them in a stronger and stronger way, whatever protections, whatever holding of space that the carers of children have been able to have up until their six, seven, eight, when the outside world of the family or the small community holding, depending on how they are held, the impact of what is going on in the wider and wider world around them changes and affects the growth of a child through this next stage. In modern times, it's the preteen or the tweens from 10, 11, 12, where you start hearing more of children having their own opinions that are getting clearer and clearer formed and more and more of their own personalities. They look with a more and more critical eye. I know a lot of parents that I've talked to over the years, myself included, this is a period where, like a practice teenager, where the critiquing and the critical thinking of first those that they feel safest 
to comment on or to look at critically those that are close in, those that are around them in friendships and in family, they can start to look and wonder, why do they do that? And begin to think more clearly and explore their own being in the world. And so as that emerges, they tend to need more and more examples from within their community that fit with understandings of themselves. And that becomes much deeper as we'll progress later in maybe the next episode into what is thought of as the true teens and the true coming-of-age moments. But in these preteen years, it is that exploration of that territory, but usually from within a safe enough and a held enough environment to push boundaries and to test and to see how far they can go in much the beginning ways that toddlers do that. And this just continues and continues to expand in how, where and how and what type of things they're exploring. They may also begin to feel the first stronger versions of maybe what might have come along as younger crushes and younger feelings of being enamored by different people that gets stronger in those years of 10, 11, 12, those kinds of strong attractions to different people of all ages, sometimes their own age, sometimes older than themselves, so that they are looking out almost at reflections of what is it in the world that attracts me. And that's often something that is also maybe a hidden mirror onto parts of themselves that they fall in love with as it is expressed in the world around them. And that mirror is something to look back on sometimes to help what might have gotten stuck at that time, what might not have grown in a person. So to kind of try and look at that at yourself at that age, and try and harvest the wisdom of that age. What and who were you falling in love with in the world at that time? What was holding your attention? What was it that was being expressed in you? And then, of course, this is also the time when whatever form of education is around a child can have really profound influences. It can have that at every age. I think there's something at this very early forming and testing that when it's optimal, you get much more articulation and expression of what is coming forward in a child, whether that be through verbal means, whether that be through another poetic means, whether it be through dance or art or other intelligences as they are expressed, children that have maybe enormous capacity for sensing into something in nature around them or tuning into different creatures or perhaps tuning into other humans, having empathy. Whatever those different strengths are, they're coming out more and more. And you see really, when you look at children at that age group, you really see these distinct little personalities that you can almost begin to imagine growing them up and saying, "That's what does this child, what will they express as when they're 
the older, wiser version of themselves? Can you kind of conjure up where is the the nascent, tiny, creative wisdoms that exist within all children? Where is that coming out? Where are those character elements? And whether or not they get to be expressed or repressed, whether they are something, that word that I use in lots of these threads, whether they're generative or the opposite of that, whether something's eroding or degenerating. And so this is where, for me, and conversations with my own children and experiences with them, but then also as an art therapist working with young children and adults, this is something that comes up as a period where the tail end of sometimes if if children have been in a primary school system or if they've been homeschooled for a period, there's something that's stretching and pushing around with those boundaries. And children are, as I say, often testing them themselves. And they're depending on how nurturing or how enabling or how repressive or how expressive the environment has been for the child. You get to see those characteristics enhanced or mitigated. It's one of the times that I think exposure to diversity as a widening circle from whatever the core family is, having experiences that show this wider world and the different people that live in it and the different ways they interact with the rest of the world. They're very, very critical things because you certainly hear when working with children of that age, you hear real repetitions of attitudes and opinions coming out of the family. This is what we think around here. This is what we behave like around here. And it becomes more solidified. So I think it is a time that if it's been a time of oppression or perhaps power over bullying, if those nascent expressions of character and also like real differences stand out and those differences can be celebrated and they can be modeled by the adults around children as being celebrated and not all children having to have everything exactly the same, different means of support or education or facilitation, matching and fitting with the child. And I think that if you imagine some of the older cultures, as children they talk about that old expression about takes a village to raise a child. And you imagine that village, and there's been some great writers exploring that and looking at that, and there's great documentaries about different ways in which you can imagine that intact and wholesome village culture and maybe not places where it might subsequently have gotten destroyed by those that came to exploit the resources of a region. But if you imagine the intact village cultures, you can see that the education environment for a child that is now coming into their own ability, coming into their mobility, being able to move around 
more and more independently, more and more safely, knowing, well, I can go down this way, I can walk through that part, I can explore this person in my community, and I can have my other connections. And so this time in a child's life was also the beginning preparation for a kind of initiation into the adult world. So it was finding your strengths, finding your limitations, finding the people who could help mentor you. Such an important kind of relationship of the, those that are our teachers with small t's, those that walk the path alongside us and encourage us to explore and to find ourselves. And that's something that can have been missing for someone. And actually, I think if you're trying to do healing work and repair work on that part of your well-being, it can be either to, in an imaginary way, go back and talk to that part of yourself as yourself, now be your own mentor. Imagine what you would say to a 10, 11, 12-year-old you at the time when you needed encouragement, not us for finding out your limitations, finding out that there were some things in the world that were going to be struggles and some things in the world that were going to come easily to you. So mentoring your way through those to explore, to mitigate where you felt, feel it was necessary and to strengthen and develop where the potential in you is. So returning to that and imagining yourself at that age, talking to that part of yourself can be one way to explore that. But equally, it may be something that you still need in your adult world, which is who would be the encouraging mentors that you need now. Something I've become more and more aware of that has been mostly expressed actually in the mainstream business world is the value of coaches and mentors and people who reach out for those, get encouragement in living their business dreams. That's sort of spilling out into a wider practice of coaching. And there is a story I saw on a TED Talk a few years ago about an experiment in India with an educator who did two different experiments. One of them was putting a computer with a keyboard kind of locked into a wall. So it was at child height and there was a keyboard and children could come along and they could push the keys on the keyboard and they could move around things on the screen and it was connected to the internet. And he put it in an area where there were street children with no education in a formal sense of that word in schools. And the children found these stations of these computers and he said within an incredibly short space of time, without it being in their language, without them maybe having much literacy, children would navigate things that excited and interested them, whether that might be the Disney website or games, or something that held a child's attention. So he took this idea a little bit further 
and he took computers out into rural India. He didn't have a connection to internet there. He had programs of database or encyclopedia on particular subjects, and they were loaded up in like what was the old CD-ROM of kind of a data cache of information on something specific, but not widely connected to any other information. So in rural India, in these classrooms with children who spoke their own language, they didn't speak English, he put marine biology or something of that science nature at a first or second year college level. That's information was all there. And he left there and he came back six weeks later and he asked the children and he asked the teachers, what are you understanding? What are they understanding here? What do you understand in this? And they'd been exploring and they'd been playing and they'd been looking into the computers for pretty lengthy stretches. And they said they didn't understand anything. So when he said, well, will I take the computers away? And they said, no, 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 no. Don't take the computer away. Their curiosity to explore was huge, even when they understood nothing. So he didn't take the computers away, but he increased one thing. He looked for grandmothers from the village, and he asked the school, and he set up that when the children were having access to exploring this strange pool of information in a different language, very science-oriented, when they were exploring it, that they should invite in grandmothers into the school, older, wiser ladies of the village. And their instruction was simply to do what grandmothers do so well in some cases in the world where they're intact and they feel whole, they are not damaged by their own traumas, they can praise a child in a very particular grandmotherly way. And so they asked these older members of the community to just stand behind the children when they were exploring and encourage them and say things like, how wonderful you are doing. How interesting it is that you can do this. Well done on what you are trying to do. Good effort for exploring. Keep going. You're doing so well. And that with the addition of this praise, he came back another six weeks later. And he asked again to the children, what did they understand? When they began to answer, he thought they were saying, well, we don't understand that. And what, what they came back with was these incredibly complex questions about if it was marine biology. They came back saying, we don't understand, we understand all of this. We don't understand how this and this work together, how this is connected. So maybe it had a, it was about physics. I can't remember this part, but it was them getting into really high level questions to explore further beyond the knowledge that had been made available to them, to make their own jumps of logic and synergy. And that ingredient that of just encouragement, just go ahead and explore, go ahead and figure that out. You're doing great. Keep going had been, in his view, significant. And at the end of that period, he had the children who had no English, but he, he had them sit 
college-level tests in this subject matter, and they performed, they outperformed the college students who had privilege, who had English language, who had usually paid for schooling, and these rural children who had none of that could outperform them simply by encouragement. So I, I love that story because I think it really heightens how simple it is and how easy it is for a parent, for a facilitator, for a staff member in a school, for other adults around, aunties and cousins and anyone older than the child to regularly instill that confidence and say, you're doing really well, to acknowledge things. That needs to be done also in a way that feels authentic to the giver of that encouragement and feels authentic to the child receiving it. So is that it's simply acknowledging that a good job was done, that something is figured out and done well. And that acknowledgement, in depending on the cultural expression, can be quite understated. can be a nod, can be a grandfather giving an acknowledgement in a calm and quiet way. It doesn't have to be overly done and move into a place of inauthentic acknowledgement or praise. Just something that is at a level that feels comfortable and feels believable. The child then can believe in that themselves because they already sensed they were doing quite a good job and they look to the adults to say, yeah, that's right, you're doing fine, keep going. And finding those adults that could help. There's um, another writer that I find very interesting on this, and although they talk about all stages of development also, um, they, they do hone in on some of this aspect of what a child in, in the village has gotten. He's, this is the author John Young, who wrote um, many books about connecting children and nature he founded a movement in the state, the art of mentoring. It's about exactly this kind of thing of helping a child open up their senses to the world around them, observe what's going on, and find themselves reflected not only in other humans that they can identify with and that they can find someone that feels like, oh, they're like me, that validation, but also in the not human world. John Young worked with an anthropologist and they, they spent 20 years going regularly to visit the sand bushmen of the Kalahari. And they had this raising the children as a village. And he observed what they picked up in really sophisticated ways of survival in the harshish conditions of the region of the world that they live. And the, he's got a lot of wonderful stories you can look up, but some of the ones that I liked was the learning by not being aware they were learning. The focus of modern schooling is on measurability and progression that's already delineated and marked out in advance. And you have to get children to these specific markers and standards and then they can be said to have acquired the knowledge. I think if you imagine the children of the sand bushmen learning by full immersion 
in their environment where they could find water, whether they could eat something or not, what to do with animals, creatures that were in any way threatening to them. And that learning was through immersive learning. And it was through this kind of nodding and acknowledging when a child was learning something really after they themselves had gone through a act of discovery and their learning is then validated and acknowledged. And I've found that in my practice and in my going through different stages of this with different children of my own and working with other people's children in different ways, it's just really striking to me just how much that simplicity of encouragement comes back around again and again shows that a child can take the very next step and the next step and move forward in their own growth and in their own awareness. And equally, how rested development that can be when the opposite is true, when they don't have encouragement and they can't see themselves as confident beings in the world of knowing the level of the sand bushman, which way to follow and hunt for an animal that is part of a critical aspect of their survival in the region they live in. But knowing not heightened anxiety, if I don't know how to do this, I can't get this right. I'm always being told I can't get it right. So they just can't develop confidence. So if you are working with that part of yourself, I think finding both coaching and encouraging mentor, but also sometimes doing your own self-talk, your own filling back up of maybe an emptied well within yourself where you don't feel like you have the capacity, you have the ability, you have the self-confidence. Just like the child, through encouragement, through mentoring, through having sometimes a community of practice or a community of mentors and supporters, you can take those steps forward. And that's kind of the link to the well-being talk in this episode and the meditation because an additional piece of this is not shirking that direction in yourself and running from it, but sometimes standing still and allowing community of life that's all around you to support you, to hold you up, to allow you to grow. And that requires sometimes asking for some help, reaching out. I sometimes think that it's worth reaching out from the not other than human world to reach out to humans, but also to reach out and say, where might I find myself reflected in this world so that I can see my own patterns, my own symbols. It's one of the times I think that the kind of mentoring that was done was getting kids to pay attention and notice where they are so that they can go forward from a place of not only who they are, but where they find themselves and how they navigate that. And it can be obviously a really big challenge if those knockbacks of confidence, if that opposite this suboptimal existence, this suboptimal education potentially 
in formal and informal ways, if it's just more of a desert, if there is an absence of those fertile grounds for fertile minds, and an absence of that encouragement, and so a child is leaving their explorations unchecked, unsensed. They can't make sense of what they're doing without the social system that they sit within. And, you know, despite the kinds of stories that are mythological of a Mowgli being raised as a child who wanders into the jungle and having friends that are wolves and bears and that Romulus and Remus, or the wild child of nature. I think this is a time that children run into their own wildness, but in reality, they need that to still be done as a form of play, like a same imagining a kitten or a puppy reaching this stage of development and pouncing on imaginary prey or acting in strange and elaborate ways of play to explore their world. And I think that's similar for children at this age. They need to play act almost and try things out, but still at the same time be held within this mentoring, observing, encouraging community around them so that they can feel that confidence develop in themselves and that there's no real thing of children surviving without that society around them. So in those stories, it's the society of wolves that then holds them there. It's society of other than human world. So it's great to have those non-human helpers, but it's also important to have the social group and the social glue that we evolve as social creatures to best grow within. So thinking about the environments around our child and what are their social milieu, who do they get to explore, where might they find their mirror in the world and how can we give them those spaces to explore their emerging selves and how we can give ourselves repair and rejuvenation from that stage of exploration to going back to imagining our 10, 11-year-old, 12-year-old selves as we formed our views in the world, formed our likes and dislikes, and developed our skills, and we're either encouraged or not. And so we can encourage ourselves now, or find those mentors who can encourage you. And then try things out and explore once again.